me welcome you into week number eight of our summer-long series through the book of Galatians. This has been a series that we began uh, two months ago, and each week we have been methodically working through the six chapters of the book of Galatians. As you know, we're calling it For Freedom, and we've been talking about, learning about, and learning to live in the freedom that Jesus has given to us. Today we're going to um, finish chapter number five, God willing, and then we'll spend the next two Sundays in chapter number six. And so two weeks from today, on Labor Day weekend, we will uh, finish up this summer-long series uh, for freedom. By the way, somebody asked me this week, they said, hey, what's the fall look like? What are you going to be preaching on in the fall? And if you'd like to read ahead, let me give you a heads up of where we're going to be going right after Labor Day, God willing. Um, begin reading in Genesis chapter 37. And you can read through the end of the book, Genesis 37 through 50. We're going to take two months this fall and we're going to study through the life of Joseph. And we're going to talk about learning to trust, learning to walk in a trusting relationship uh, with God as we see that through the ebbs and flows and the valleys and the mountain peaks and the, and the experiences of Joseph's life. That will be our, our focus this fall. But for now, as you know, we have been talking about uh, this freedom that God gives us through Christ as Paul has described it in the book of Galatians. Now, let me give you the big idea. Uh, we haven't talked about it in a couple of weeks because I was gone last Sunday and Sullivan did a great job and the Sunday before that we were in the book of Joshua. So let me give you the big idea of what we've learned over these eight weeks. In fact, why don't you say this out loud with me? Here's what we've learned, say it. We are saved by the power of the gospel, not by the merit of good works. We are saved by the power of the gospel, not by the merit of good works. Here's the translation of that. I'm not good enough to go to heaven, and you're not either. And you and I will never be good enough ever in our lifetimes to go to heaven. There is no virtue that we can accrue to our credit by repeatedly doing the right things and being a good person that will ever qualify us to go to heaven. This is Paul's message. We are saved by grace, not by keeping the law. We are saved by faith, by trusting in Jesus, not by doing good things or by being a good person. I said it to you this way one week. We are saved by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of our flesh. Or another way that we've said it is this. We are saved by the activity of God, not by the actions of a person. Is it clear? Are there any other ways that I could say it? Salvation comes through the power of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and not by the merit of our own good works. In fact, look at verse number 13 of chapter 5 where Paul reminds us that we have been called into this kind of freedom in Christ. He says in verse 13, for brothers or brethren, you have been called unto liberty. It's as if he's saying that Jesus by his grace has called your name, that the Holy Spirit has called you by name unto himself if you know Christ. And in fact, he has. And he has called you into this place of liberty, this place of freedom. So what Paul wants us to know is, look, you can rest 
You can rest in the work of Christ at the cross. You don't have to move over into a worrisome legalism where you're working and striving and hoping that you're good enough today to be okay with God today. And that as long as you'll be good enough again tomorrow, you'll be okay with God tomorrow. He doesn't want us to worry in that rule keeping. No, he says, look, you've been called to liberty. You're free. Rest in the freedom that you've been given in Christ. Somebody ought to say, praise God for that. I don't want to live in this works religion. I want to rest in the freedom that I've been called to. But then he goes on in verse 13 to say, however, be careful, you've been called to freedom, but don't use your freedom to go the other way either. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. The way he says it in verse 13 is, don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh. In other words, I'm resting in Christ I'd never have to worry that I've got to work to be right with God. Neither, though, can I go over to this side and say, well, I'm right with God. I can do anything I want to do. I can live any way I want to live. He doesn't say there are no commands, there are no rules, there are no ways in which we should live. He says just rest in the freedom that you've been given. Now, he does say, though, that there is a bondage, a servitude, to which every Christian has been called. It's not the service of the law. It's not the bondage to the law. And it's not free license of sin. But there is, a, there is a servitude that we have. Look at it. Chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, For brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, your indulging of the flesh, but rather by love serve. Everybody say the word serve. By love, serve. You know what service is? It's, it's, it's a bondage. It's an act of, of, it's a position of slavery. It's an act of service. It's a servitude. He says, you're not in bondage to the law, but you are in bondage to this. You are in bondage to loving one another. You are called to be free in Christ and to serve one another in love. Now, the point of that is to say we are free in Christ, but we are not free alone. We are free together. He saves us as part of his body, and he calls us to serve one another. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in this one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Rest in Christ's freedom. Don't be bound up in the law. Don't go off and live a way that's ungodly because you think you're free to do anything. Rather, rest in that freedom and in love, serve one another. Now, what Paul is going to do in our text, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16 in just a moment, but what he's going to tell you in our text today is that in the same way that we are saved by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, we also live out our salvation in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. Listen carefully. In the same way that I'm not saved by being good, neither am I sanctified by being good. It's the power of the Spirit that rescues and redeems my soul. It's also the power of the Spirit that energizes my life so that I can serve this God who has now saved me. Now for the Judaizers, this was a problem 
Because for these people who were Paul's opponents, the legalists, the Judaizers, for them, everything about their relationship with God depended upon their flesh. Everything did. I mean, think about it. For the Judaizers, the very, the very mark of their right standing with God was the mark of circumcision in their flesh. It was what displayed in their flesh that they were in a relationship with God. For the Judaizers, their ability to serve God or, or to walk out their faith was totally dependent on their ability to train themselves to pray the right prayers on the right days, in the right place, or at least in the right direction, to eat the right foods and to abstain from the wrong kinds of foods. All of this Judaism, this religious expression was wrapped up in what I can do or not do in my flesh. It had to do with their willingness and ability to resist temptation and to follow the very strict precepts of the law, to bring their flesh into alignment with the law of God. Everything for the Judaizers about walking with God had to do with the success of their flesh. And if you've lived very long, you know what I know. That's a problem. <laughs> because the flesh is a problem. Can I get a witness from anybody in the room? At least two people that were honest. There were only two in the first service. Are there at least that many in this service? The flesh is a problem. And he's going to talk to us about it. Look at it, if you will, in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you fail to do or cannot do the things that you would. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or they're obvious, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, sensuality, lasciviousness, lasciviousness means sensuality, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, strife, emulations, jealousy. Anybody want Paul to stop? <laughs> he keeps going. Wrath, rage, strife, dissension, seditions, heresies, envyings. You want him to stop? Murders, drunkenness, carousing or revelings, and such the like. As I've also told you in time past, I now say again that those which do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace. Patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gen, uh, faithfulness, kindness, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Against such, there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lusts. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, 
That is, if we have life in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. I want you to write this down. I know a lot of you are note takers. And somewhere in your notes, I want you to be sure that you get this down today. Paul begins by pointing out for us the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Write it down. The conflict between the flesh and the spirit. You'll notice this in verse number 17 where he says, the flesh lusts against the spirit. Now the word lust means the flesh desires. So here's the way to say that. He says, the flesh desires what the spirit is opposed to. And the spirit longs for what the flesh hates. The flesh and the spirit long for different things. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse number 17, for these two, the flesh and the spirit, are contrary with one another or they are in conflict with one another. They are opposed to one another. Now, over and over again in this passage, he talks about the flesh. I've circled it in my Bible. There are about eight times in chapter five and once in chapter six where he talks about the flesh. Do you see it beginning in verse number 13? It's verse 13, verse 16, verse 17, I think. Verse 19, verse 24. Chapter 6, verse 8, the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. So what does he mean by the flesh? Is he talking about my skin and, my, and my, my actual body? Well, he is in the sense that it's, this is the operation center of the flesh, but he doesn't really mean my muscle and my tissue. What he's referring to is what resides in this flesh, which is my human nature. That's what he means by the flesh, my human nature, which is embodied in this body that I live in. It's, it's, uh, it's lived out in this body of flesh. We all have a human nature. It's that earthy part of us. We're born with this fallen human nature. Now, the same number of times that he talks about the, the flesh, about eight times in this passage, he equally talks about the spirit. I circled the spirit in my Bible as well. Verse 16, 17, 18, 22, 25. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So when he talks about the Spirit, don't think he means your spirit, like the spirit of man within you. No, he's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. You'll notice the word Spirit is capitalized here, referring to the third person of the Trinity. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that indwells you if you are a a believer. In fact, look at chapter 4, Galatians 4 and verse 6. He talks about this the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because you are sons of God, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when he says in Galatians 5, there is the flesh and there is the Spirit, and these two are at odds with one another, they're contrary or in conflict with one another, he's talking about your human nature within you, and the Holy Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, lives within you as well. Now, if y'all tracking with me, would you say amen? Do you understand this? Now, think about this. Before you came to know Jesus as your Savior, you had a human nature, right? You still have it, by the way. Every person, every human being has a human nature. But before you met Jesus, while you possessed your fallen human nature, what you didn't have was the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
So when your human nature wanted to sin before you uh, met Christ, there was no Holy Spirit within you to resist, to pull back on the reins or to lead you another way. Now, there were some other things. We'll talk about them in a minute. What are the things that restrain us even before we know Jesus in our sin? But the point is we had this human nature and no spirit. In fact, turn one page. Go to Ephesians 2. It's the very next page. Next book in your Bible. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul talks about this beginning in verse 1. He says, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. My, my inner man, my spirit was dead. I was dead spiritually. But when I met Jesus, he made me alive. I was born again. Verse number 2. Wherein in time past, before you met the Lord, you walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, who now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our manner of living, in times past, look at this, in the lusts of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the mind, and were by our very nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's describing that human nature, that fallen human nature that operated only based on the longings, the lusting, the desires of the flesh, the human nature. That's all we had before we met Jesus. But he goes on to say in the very next verse, verse number four, but God. Everybody say those two words out loud. Same like you made them. But God. Praise God for his mercy. Amen. That's who we were before we met Jesus. Verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy, For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace are you saved. So Paul's making the point in Galatians that we have this battle going on. And in Ephesians, he says, before you met Jesus, there was no battle. There was no conflict to be had because you did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And by the way, This is the reason. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives within you is the reason that you cannot sin with impunity once you come to faith in Jesus. You cannot continue to live the way you've always lived without the Holy Spirit resisting it and pulling you away from it and leading you to righteousness instead of unrighteousness. It is impossible because the Holy Spirit lives within you and he resists the flesh. Hear this pastor this morning. Do not miss what I'm getting ready to say. If you are a person who, like many people, say, well, I'm sure I'm saved because I got baptized when I was a kid. I prayed a prayer when I was 10 years old or 8 years old or 12 years old, and I was baptized, and I'm going to heaven, I'm sure. And yet, since that time you got baptized or prayed that prayer, nothing, not a thing has ever changed in your life. There's no desire for righteousness, no desire for God, no desire to serve him. You can live any way and there's no conviction in your heart. What you need to stop doing is trusting in a prayer and a baptism and get on your knees and call upon Jesus to be your savior. Because if Jesus Christ is your savior and the Holy Spirit lives within you, you cannot live in sin without the Holy Spirit pulling you back. It's that conflict. And in fact, that conflict is the greatest evidence we have that we have in fact been born again. 
The fact that I want to do right and I don't always do it and the fact that when I sin, I have grief and regret over my sin is the evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within me. He's talking about the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. Now he goes on, beginning in verse number 19 then, to compare the two. And we read this very unhappy list beginning in verse number 19. Write this down. It's a comparison of the flesh and the spirit. In verse number 19, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. They're, they're, they're obvious. And here they are. And he begins to listen. By the way, the word works is the, word, is the Greek word ergon or ergon. It means the deeds of. It is when, the, when human nature does what human nature wants to do. Okay? When human nature goes its way, this is what you get. He says in verse number 19, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and the list goes on. I won't read it all to you again right now. Now here's what I want you to know. This list that he gives in verses 19, 20, and 21, these works of the flesh are present If y'all are listening, say amen. These things are present in every human life to some degree or another. Some form, some manifestation of these things are present in every human life because they are the deeds of the human nature and every human being has a human nature. Now, they're more obvious in some lives than others. Even lost people's lives, right? I said a moment ago, there are some restraints on our human nature that are present even before the Holy Spirit indwells us. And because of those restraints, the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of our human nature can be restrained They they can be governed, they can be moderated by several things. One is a conscience. A conscience, the conscience that God gives to every person, saved or not, is common grace that he gives us. It's the result of being created in the image of God and we're all born with a conscience. Now the problem about a conscience is you can dull it. You can sear your conscience. That's the reason that when you, our children are small, like when you've got a little you know, year old or year and a half old baby and they do something wrong and you go, now don't you do that. What do they usually do? Their little chin will start to quiver and their lip will curl up and tears will fill their eyes. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You let them get to be four and do the same thing. And you go, hey, and they're like, what? <laughs> you know what's happening? Their, their human nature's coming out because their conscience is being dulled a little bit. And by the way, that goes on our whole lives. The, the longer we live, the more our conscience can be seared or dulled. What about culture? Culture makes a difference in how we live out our human desires, human nature. There's some cultures that just by you know, the teaching in that culture, the values or the vault virtues of those cultures, then people's moral behavior is better. They're more civilized than other cultures. It's, it's, it's not that they're saved. It's not that they're closer to God. It's just that their culture has imposed upon them expectations which moderates behavior. That's true. 
Uh, and sometimes human nature is just controlled. It's controlled, it's parental controls. It's controlled by parents. It's controlled by police and, and laws and government officials. It's controlled by our own sense of values or moral rights or wrongs. But none of those things are the equivalent of salvation or the Spirit of God indwelling within us. Whatever the degree of their presence, all of these things are present in some form. Verse number 19, let's look at it. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. He's talking about the human nature to tend towards sexual immorality, to tend toward moral impurity, to tend toward promiscuity as opposed to virtue. That's the human nature. He goes on to talk about in verse number 20, idolatry and witchcraft. This is the human nature which takes what knowledge we have of God, even before we know Jesus, that common grace of knowing God, and rather than turning that to worship, cultures and individuals turn it toward idolatry, worshiping things that are not God at all. He goes on to say in verse number 20, there's strife and jealousy and rage and opinions and factions and divisions. This is the human nature. To be morally impure, to satisfy my own needs, own wants and desires, then to reject the authority and the value of who God is, and then to isolate myself and be at odds with others. He goes on to say in verse number 21, that progresses to envy and murder and drunkenness and wild carousings, revelings. And so it's this inward passion driven by my human nature. It's this Godward or upward rebellion that says I can make my own God. And then it's this outward offense toward others. It happens in all of us. It resides in all of us to some degree or another. For the Christian, it is becoming less and less and less as we're growing in sanctification. But it's present. He says that's the works of the flesh. Verse 22, 23, he says there's a better way. Hey, are you glad there's a better way? There is, right? So verse 22, he says these are the works of the flesh, but here's the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Now, nobody would deny when you put those two lists side by side, God's way is the better way. Amen? What the Spirit produces is far better than what the flesh will do. And so for the believer, here's really the, the critical question for the day. For the believer who has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, I, I still dwell in my flesh, but the Spirit of God indwells me. I, I live in this body, but Christ lives in me. So if I have these two natures, my human nature tending away from God to these works and the Spirit of God drawing me toward love, joy, peace, patience and producing those things. If these two are at odds, how can I as a Christian lean into the Spirit and live the Spirit life as opposed to leaning into the flesh and letting those works of the flesh be so evident and destructive in my life? 
Well, I think that really is the critical question that I want to try to answer for you in these closing few minutes. And in fact, I'm not answering it at all. Paul answers it for us. Let me just point it out to you. He talks about uh, how we do this as he gives us these instructions for walking in the Spirit. Let's talk just briefly as we close about walking in the Spirit. I want you to look at verse number 16. In fact, you ought to highlight it if it's not already highlighted in your Bible. And as I often say, circle it, draw arrows to it, you know, mark it, don't ever lose it. This is quite the promise. Verse 16, this I say then, Paul says emphatically, here's my declaration. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill your human nature. You will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Well, there you go. God bless you, you're dismissed. (laughs) Is that a promise or what? That's an amazing promise from God's word that I don't have to live in my human nature. I can live in the fruit or experience the fruit of the Spirit. I think this is important because I think there are so many Christians who are so bound up in sin, who are so bound up in addictions and so bound up in sin patterns and thought patterns and attitudes that look nothing like Jesus. And it's not that they don't know Christ. Many of them know Jesus as their Savior. They just haven't learned how to walk in the Spirit. So how do we do it? Well, notice what he says in verse number 16. It's a very clear command. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The word walk in this verse means to step in accordance with. It's the idea of getting in a single file line and just following, walking in the spirit. If you go down to verse 25, he says the same thing, uses a different word. He says if we live in the spirit, that is if we have, the, if we have life in the spirit, then let us walk. In the spirit. Do you see that in verse 25? And the word he uses in that verse is the word which means to conform to. So it's a similar word, but it means to be conformed to the work of the spirit or to, to model or to imitate. And interestingly, one other place, look at verse number 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit. He says we should walk in the Spirit. We should be guided or we should be conformed to the Spirit. And then we should be guided or led or brought along by the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Let me suggest just a few ways really quickly. Number one, very simple and practical, I think, is to welcome the Holy Spirit every day. Welcome the Holy Spirit. I would I would wager that I have probably mentioned the name of the Holy Spirit more in the last 40 minutes than maybe many of us have spoken his name in the last year. Because sadly, too many of us don't think much about the Holy Spirit in our lives. And while I don't have time, or, or nor would you want me to take the time to give you an, a complete discussion of the theology of the Trinity and who the Holy Spirit is, simply know that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God, the third person of the Trinity, who dwells within us. And if he is within me, if he lives here, then I want him to be at home. In fact, Paul says this, I believe in Colossians, that Christ may be at home in your hearts. I want him to be home there. I want him to be welcome. I want to put out the welcome mat for the Holy Spirit to guide my life. And I want to do that every single day. Jesus illustrated this so beautifully on the night of his arrest. John 15 records it where he's gone from the upper room and he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be 
going to be arrested and crucified the next morning. And he begins to talk to his disciples about how there can be fruit in their lives. You remember this beautiful illustration? He says, uh, he says I want you to know that I am the vine. I'm the, tree, I'm the tree trunk, the vine. And you're the branch. And my father is the husbandman. He's the gardener. And if you'll abide in me, then you will bear fruit. It'll be fruit in your life if you'll just abide. It's this beautiful illustration. You can imagine him pulling a branch down from an olive tree, right? He's walking through the Garden of Gethsemane. These olive trees are everywhere. I can imagine pulling a branch down, plucking an olive off, or at least looking where an olive would be during the harvest season, and saying, the only way that olive shows up at the end of this little bitty branch is if that limb remains in the trunk. And I'm the tree, and you're the branch, and if you'll stay connected to me, then fruit is going to show up on your on your life. You know, it's harvest season. Apple harvest season is coming up. Some of us are going to go out to the, to the apple orchards in Henderson County. We love to do this and go out and gather apples. And Tracy will make all the good apple, apple you know, whatever you make with apples, good apple stuff. And, and, but we got to go get the apples first. And we'll, we'll go out to the apple orchard. And, and you're going to go. Let me tell you what you're not going to see when you go out there. You are not going to see a, a, a limb, a branch, on an apple tree, grunting and straining. You will not see it. You're not going to see a branch going, trying to push an apple out of the end. It's not going to happen. Because the only way that the apple shows up so you can pick it and enjoy the fruit is if the branch stays connected to the tree. And what's happening is when the branch is connected to the tree, there's some sap and there's some nutrients and there's some life flowing through that tree into that branch that produces that fruit. And Jesus said, if you will just abide in me and welcome, rest in me and welcome my work in your life and my Holy Spirit to produce it, the Holy Spirit will work this life in you. And one day you will look around and you'll go, you know what, I'm more loving than I used to be. I've got more peace than I once had. There's more joy in my life than there used to be there. You know why? Not because I tried. Some of you will get up tomorrow morning, I've done this, and say, I am going to be patient in traffic today. That's hard, especially if you live in Asheville. You know, Asheville is an hour away from Asheville because of the traffic. But anyway, but if you drive in traffic, you go, I am going to be patient today. I'm going to be patient, I'm going to be patient, I'm going to be patient. Patience. And if you're like me, you're not going to get very far. You're going to lose your patience because I'm trying hard. But if I get up in the morning and say, Holy Spirit, today I want to abide in Jesus. I'm inviting you to produce the life of Jesus within me. Then you know what? I'll just realize I'll get to the office and I'll go, you know what? Hey, man, I was patient today. Love, joy, peace, patience. They just show up in our lives. Number two, set your mind on the Holy Spirit daily. Set your mind on him. Paul talks about this in Romans 8 when he says, those, those that mind the things of the Spirit... And those that mind the things of the flesh, and if you mind the things of the flesh, that is you put your mind on the things of the world, the things of the flesh, you're going to do the works of the flesh. But if you'll put your mind on the things of the Spirit, you'll do the works of the Spirit. How do I mind or set my mind on the Spirit? I do it through His Word. I fill my mind with the Scriptures. Number three, crucify your human nature daily. Did you see this in verse number 24? At the end of these, these um, works of the flesh, verse 19, 20, 21, all that horrible list, then contrasted and compared to verses 22 and 23, this beautiful life of the Spirit, he says, now here's the key, they that are Christ's 
have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Now, this is different than Galatians 2.20. Because Galatians 2.20, you might remember, said, I am crucified with Christ. That's the reality of my conversion. When I came to Christ, I was crucified with him, nailed to his cross. My life died with him, and I became a new person. I'm not, in verse 24, this is not passive. He doesn't say those that are Christ have been crucified. He says those that are Christ's crucify the flesh. On purpose, intentionally, they determine that they have determined that they died with Christ when they got saved and they're gonna put their flesh on that cross every single day. So I'm gonna get up in the morning and when my flesh, my human nature rises up, wants to serve myself, be insensitive, be lustful, be greedy, be uh, insincere or untrue, whatever, offensive, rebellious, idolatrous, when that human nature rises up, I'm gonna say, no, no, you've already died, you've been crucified, Get back on the cross, and I'm going to live under the gospel work of the cross every single day. It'd kind of be like this. I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but 37 years ago, Tracy Riddle and I stood at an altar, and we said yes to one another. And when we did that, we said no to every other person in the world. I said no to every other woman. She said no to every other man. Now, we've been married 37 years. Do you think that, that it is even within the realm of, of my thinking that if some woman, some other woman said, hey, leave Tracy and be a part of my life. Don't worry, it never happened. But if some woman ever said that, do you think there's any possibility that I would say, oh, that's a good plan. Yeah, I'll do that. Are you kidding me? My only reasonable response would be to say, I've, I've got a wife, man. I've already committed my life to this person. I've already given my heart to her. And so I'm going to live today in the reality of what I did 37 years ago. In the same way, Christ became my Savior 40 years ago. And now I'm going to say every single day, I'm going to take my human nature, and I'm going to go to the cross where I got saved, and I'm going to give my human I'm going to nail my human nature to the cross, and I'm going to say, now, Spirit of God, live the Christ life in me. Mind the Spirit, invite the Spirit, and crucify your human nature. Two spirits, two natures, human nature, divine nature, flesh, Spirit, verse 17, they are at conflict. Charles Spurgeon famously told a story of a man who had two dogs and they constantly fought, fought every day. And he was telling his friend about these two dogs that would fight every single day. And his friend said, which one of the dogs wins the fight? And he said, you know, it's weird or it's, it's uh, not unusual that the dog that I feed the most is the stronger dog. He wins the fight. And so here's a good closing principle for you. They'll put it on the screen. It is just to say that we should feed the spirit and starve the flesh. And if we'll do that, if we know Christ, Christ, you live within me by your spirit. I want to mind the spirit. I want to welcome the spirit. I want to crucify my flesh. I'm going to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. And God, would you let the human nature, the flesh, and Jim Dykes diminish and diminish and diminish and diminish and diminish as the spirit of God takes fuller and fuller and fuller possession. And would you let the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the meekness and the self-control, let those things be so prominent and let the works of the flesh disappear more and more and more. And if I lean into the Spirit, He will do that and I can live out what Christ has made true of me.